Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. Um, Good evening and a very warm welcome to all of you in the room and joining us online uh, for this public lecture by Professor Nick Crafts. My name is Patrick Wallace. I'm one of the professors in the Department of Economic History and the current head of department. Uh, Before we get to business, uh, just a few practicalities. Uh, This is a hybrid event, so it will be recorded. It will be available later online. Um, We have a Twitter hashtag, uh, hashtag LSE UK Economy, um, if you'd like to tweet about the lecture. Um, For those of you in the room, can you make sure your mobile phones are turned off? Because even if you are tweeting, we kind of don't want to hear about that, right? Um, and finally, um, for those in person, uh, present in person, uh, if there is a fire alarm, then uh, the uh, assembly point is on the pedestrianized street just around the corner in front of the Pankhurst building. Uh, so after the lecture, uh, we will have some time for questions. Uh, we'll be taking questions from uh, the online uh, participants and also from those of us in the room here today. Um, If you're joining us online, please um, put your name, your affiliation, and uh, your location and type in your question, and I will read them to Nick. Uh, For those of you in the room, we can use uh, older technology. Um, Also, finally, before I move on, if you enjoy this event, uh, please join us uh, next Monday for um, our next uh, event, which will be online, which uh, It's going to be a talk given by Brad DeLong, the American economist and economic historian, um, introducing his new economic history of the 20th century. That's on Monday evening. So our speaker today is Nick Crafts, uh, currently a professor at the University of Sussex. Um, Nick is currently the president of the Royal Economic Society. He's a former president of the Economic History Society. Um, And earlier in his career, he spent a happy decade here at LSE in our department as one of our professors. So this is very much a welcome back to Houghton Street to Nick. Um, Nick's work has shaped much of how we think about the economic history of Britain over the last three centuries, changing how we think about growth, um, space, its location, its effect, and explaining the effect of government policies on the economy. When we began to talk about what um, Nick might might speak on today, It was in the context of trying to understand the lessons we might draw about the recovery from COVID um, by looking at the period after the Second World War. Uh, Given the very sharp impact of recent policy decisions uh, and external pressures on energy, et cetera, um, looking at the past to try and understand the present has become, I think, even more pressing. In the press, there's been a lot of talk about the 1970s, Nick is going to take us further back and take us back to the government of Clement Attlee, who also spent a bit of time early in his career at LSE teaching um, and take some lessons from the 1940s for how we might think about the economy today. So Nick, thank you very much. Let me hand the platform over to you now. Nick Croft. Thank you, Patrick. That was so far too generous an introduction. Uh, But I did certainly spend a happy 10 years here, and it's very nice to see a number of old colleagues. And of course, the upgrade the department's had since I left is revealed in new colleagues who are here. So 
Play It Again, Clem is the title that I chose. Uh, and you'll notice there's a question mark there. Um, in fact, the theme of the talk is essentially that probably on the whole, we have too rosy a view of the post-war period, the early post-war period, in terms of the policies that were chosen, the effects that they had. It certainly could have gone a lot worse. I'm not going to say in any way this was a disaster, but nevertheless, we need to be a bit careful about what lessons we could choose. It is uh, very common to be told that we should look for uh, lessons from this period. I picked out just two there, but there are plenty you could find in the uh, recent uh, press. Um, the head of the CBI, for example, recently saying, we need a 1945 moment. Uh, the reference there to Keir Starmer is to his flagship speech about 18 months ago, in which he talks quite a lot about the post-war period as a kind of inspiration for what Labour might want to do. Uh, it's one thing to be an inspiration. It's another thing to go for detailed emulation of what they did. And I think we should distinguish that. We might still want to be inspired, but uh, if we think about uh, the stance that economic policy had in 1950 or thereabouts, uh, the end, if you will, of that Labour government after the war, uh, then it's obviously rather different from what had been the case at the beginning of the century. Um, we have a mixed economy by now. Uh, the state plays quite a large role. Its budget is pretty big, certainly compared with the, the sort of minuscule state of 1900. Uh, we moved away from being uh, a fully paid up member of the Globalisation Club at that stage. Uh, we joined the Bretton Woods system, but in particular, we keep capital controls. Uh, and that's what uh, Danny Roderick had in mind when he coined that phrase, the Bretton Woods Compromise. Down at the bottom, I've highlighted in red the two names that people tend to associate with uh, that post-World War II uh, revival of the British economy, Maynard Keynes and William uh, Beveridge. They were very different from their Victorian counterparts. Uh, William Gladstone, yes, before you become pedantic, I know he was dead before 1900, but he does nevertheless represent Victorian, if you like, budgetary orthodoxy. He was prime minister several times. He was also chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, so William Gladstone was the balanced budget, Maynard Keynes seemed to give uh, the green light for deficit finance and a very different approach to managing the public finances. William Beveridge was, of course, the author of the big report on the British welfare state published in the, the middle of the war. Oliver Twist, I'm aware, was published a long time before 1900. Not absolutely certain, but I think it may have been 1838. It's approximately there. But nevertheless, Oliver Twist, for me in this story, represents the workhouse. Uh, the workhouse, the Victorian poor law, 
Uh, that was then, and still there in 1900, Beveridge clearly wanted a very different uh, regime. Okay, um, in putting the, the background for this talk together, ah, oh, sorry, I went over a slide there. Uh, I wanted just to make sure that we have the context and a couple of things, uh, these next two slides before we get on to the, the detail of today. It is, of course, the case that Britain had a difficult time in the interwar period in the respect of unemployment. These figures are for insured workers. They do exaggerate the total rate of unemployment. Not everyone was in the scheme. Where you see that 10.8 figure for the UK in 1937, for the population as a whole, it's probably more like 8.5. So these are relatively uh, inflated numbers, a bit inflated. But I think this is the only way we can get at these regional uh, aspects of the story. And what I want you to take away from that is that unemployment was persistent in lots of Britain. It seemed to be a problem that the market economy of the period couldn't solve. Politicians who could claim to solve the problem or economists who gave them the apparent tools to do it, that represented a major uh, advantage. And it quite quickly, I think, uh, became an imperative of post-war policy that there would be no return to the 1930s, no return to this high unemployment. So the shocking numbers there are particularly, I think, for Wales. Uh, 1937 was a boom year in the southeast, but we've still got that 23% of insured workers unemployed in Wales. Implications of that interwar period seem to me to include that there was, generally speaking, a loss of faith in the market economy. If the market economy couldn't do better than that, surely government must play a bigger role. Voters, I think, rather clearly wanted a better social safety net. Uh, the poor law in combination with the interwar unemployment insurance scheme was a safety net. We shouldn't think there's no welfare state. That's, of course, not true. But nevertheless, there were a lot of things that were felt to be undesirable about those arrangements. If you did find yourself uh, recoursing to the poor law or it became public assistance, uh, its official title, uh, then uh, I think the important thing to notice or to remember is you had to go through a household means test. That was hugely resented. And one of the big things that uh, Beveridge promised uh, was that we'd move away from that. And I think generally speaking, if you lose faith in the market economy, you probably think that the state should play a bigger role and you're probably going to see proposals for state intervention uh, viewed rather more favorably. Okay, let's now have a look at what happened. Uh, I'm going to take the period up until the early 70s as worth looking at. So it's from the 40s to the 70s. And my reason for that is essentially that I think we see the 1940s generating this post-war settlement, sometimes called the post-war consensus, 
PhDs can be written on whether there really was a post-war consensus, and in all sorts of ways it can be contested. But nevertheless, I think it's a useful idea here. Lots of things were in broad outline agreed. For example, that there would be Keynesian demand management. By the early 1950s, that was the uh, order of the day. Uh, so we can see that post-war consensus breaking down in the 1970s and certainly hugely departed from by the Thatcher governments of the 80s. Uh, but for the 50s and 60s, uh, there was quite a lot of it about. And uh, I think we can think of the one nation type conservative almost extinct, I believe, but there were quite a lot of them in the 1950s, at least. Uh, they were part of this story, in effect. So what we might quickly look at, uh, I like numbers, so I'll show you some more in a minute, is that record on unemployment. We can have a look at how quickly the economy grew, and by British standards, it certainly was rapid. We can say a little bit about uh, the outlines of this Sometimes period sometimes called the golden age of the welfare state. And we can also note uh, something about the incidence of poverty. I do that um, uh, cautiously, given that the person from whom I've taken the information is sitting in the front row. Uh, but he will have the chance to interrupt and tell me I'm wrong at the end. <laughs> okay, so macroeconomic performance. And that's a fairly conventional sort of uh, golden age uh, period, 1950 to 73. The average unemployment rate, as more or less as we would measure it now, taken from this Thomas and Dimsdale source, was just over 2.6%. Uh, for the 50s and 60s on their own, it's closer to 2%. It's rising at the end of the period. Uh, the inflation rate, perhaps less startling success, but it was only 4.7% on average in that period. Again, rising at the end of the period. Uh, so the 50s was really still quite low inflation. And growth of real GDP per person, a little over 3% a year in real terms. You know, we would give our eye teeth for that now. Actually, it was a bit less impressive then. The average for Eastern Europe was 3.8%, but perhaps we should pass over that um, inconvenient truth. Unemployment. Unemployment was low, as we saw a moment ago. If you're an economist by inclination and you know something about the economics literature, then I think the way to interpret this period is not that that unemployment was achieved by Keynesian means. This is not, I think, a triumph for Keynesian demand management. There's no huge fiscal stimulus. We don't see massive use of deficit finance. When we do see Keynesian tools being used to try and fine tune the economy, uh, we know that that was not done particularly well. Uh, we talk of, period, of terms like stop, go, and so on. Uh, looking to the very well-known research of originally Layard and Nickel, 1985, they refined it a bit later. 
they essentially said the Nehru, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, was probably close to 2%. That would be much lower than in later periods like the 1980s, 1970s even. So it was possible to achieve uh, low unemployment. Uh, and if there's a Keynesian triumph, it is simply that they didn't allow the output gap generally to become big. But this very low unemployment, to which they definitely aspired, raised the continual worry that inflation was just around the corner. The 1950s and 1960s, and particularly 1970s, uh, response to that was wage restraint in one way or another. Informal social contracts, moving up all the way to sort of uh, legislating that uh, wage increases would be illegal uh, above uh, a certain number and so on. The wage restraint was achieved insofar as it was, and it kept breaking down, particularly at the end of that, those years, by trying to get agreement from trade unions to exercise wage restraint. How was that agreement sought? In particular, by choosing supply-side policies, which those unions would be comfortable with. So I think we could probably say that this is not a Keynesian triumph in the way that we might understand it at a simple level anyway, and that the unemployment was achieved, the unemployment, with a kind of cost, the cost being foregone productivity growth. Let's turn to growth. UK productivity growth, again, goodness me, I don't know what comes after IT, but we give more than just IT for this. Uh, Labour productivity growth measured as output per hour worked. Uh, my, I've recently re-estimated the numbers, uh, so those are, are not yet published. You're having a sneak preview. Uh, I now think the number, correct number is 3.9 or just over 3.9% per year. Uh, and that is about half a percent bigger than I thought until recently. Uh, data revisions suggest that that might be the right number. Uh, so even if you're a professional economic historian, uh, you will have learned something today, uh, namely that Crafts has a new estimate of this number, uh, possibly again, completely wrong. You can tell me in a little while. Uh, so by UK standards, this is very good. It's the all time high. We always knew that it's just even higher now. Catch-up growth was the period that we're talking about. United States had a very large productivity lead at the end of the war. Europe grew very quickly by reducing that lead, by catching up, uh, by importing the technology, imitating the technology, whatever it might be, and so on. Conditions for growth were hugely favorable in one way or another. Uh, the French have this phrase, the 30 glorious years. Uh, that even applies to Eastern Europe. Uh, they certainly grow less quickly uh, than you might expect if you sort of run a regression and put in your East European dummy variable. Uh, there's no doubt they play a penalty for being outside the West, but even so. 
But what about the UK's performance in comparative perspective? Well, as we know, I think from a long time ago, UK experienced relative economic decline. What does that mean? It means that other countries grew more quickly than we did. More quickly to the extent that they'd actually overtaken the UK in productivity levels somewhere around the early 1970s that was being achieved. And by the end of the 70s, I think it's fairly clear. Uh, so the way to read that table is that in 1979, France was 14.8% ahead of the UK. Germany, let me emphasize this is West Germany. I probably should have put that in the chart. 16.8% uh, ahead of the UK. Uh, very different from 1950. Let's turn to Social Security for a moment or the welfare state. Again, I think it's the same story. It's good what we're going to see, but not as good as is sometimes believed. And uh, again, the issue might be uh, was policy really uh, as well designed as some people uh, think? Uh, so I'm going to say here that whether we measure this on the basis of the kind of round tree beverage poverty line approach of the 1930s, or we measure it on a more modern relative income basis, uh, and Ian's research allows us to make some comments on that, uh, poverty was not abolished. Uh, people, some people at least thought it was at the time. You can find sort of uh, spectacular newspaper headlines and so on. Uh, but I think we should say these reforms reduced poverty, but they didn't ab abolish it. Tim Hatton's research from more than 20 years ago now shows that if Roundtree had used his own data correctly, he would have found almost 12% of working class households still in poverty in York, the city he repeatedly surveyed, uh, York in 1950. Um, Tim Hatton also did uh, quite a nice counterfactual in that research. He did point out that the uh, poverty hadn't been abolished, but he tried to calculate what it would have been on the basis of the pre-war social security system, it would have been higher. But it wouldn't have been spectacularly higher. 15.5% was his estimate. I think when we look at uh, the numbers carefully, uh, there's a big issue here as to exactly how much the cost of living increased over World War II. Uh, but my reading of the, the consensus in the literature is that the benefits which the government actually awarded in that 1940s uh, period of reform, uh, culminating in 1948, uh, those benefits were below beverages poverty line in real terms uh, and non-trivially below. I'll show you some numbers in a little while. And... That figure at the bottom is quite interesting as well. Two million people approximately were still claiming national assistance in 1965. What was national assistance? Well, it was quickly going to be called supplementary benefit, uh, but leave that aside. 
Um, it was the backup safety net. It was means tested for people who fell through the cracks of beverages system. So if you had abolished means testing completely, that figure should have been zero. Here are some numbers again. Um, percentage of households in poverty. Uh, these numbers are for slightly different years in some cases, but uh, I think we can sort of see them as about right for about the year I'm looking at. You'll notice a reduction in households in poverty, this time measured on 60% of median income criterion, 16% uh, approximately in the late 1930s, perhaps 13% or just over in the early 1950s. That's an improvement, no doubt about it, but we should be you know, saying it's a welcome improvement, not a spectacular change. Social expenditures uh, do go up, but again, possibly not as much as most people would guess. About 3% more of GDP in 1951 than in 1938. Um, you can see that uh, there is extra spending on education and health, social security, uh, that would include transfer payments for unemployment and so on. Um, in 1951, about the same as 1938. Uh, that reflects, of course, the much lower unemployment in the uh, early post-war years. Okay, so that's a little canter through some of the experience. As I say, I think my take on that is this is quite commendable in various ways. We shouldn't be too uh, critical of it, but maybe it's not quite as golden as is often portrayed. Uh, we, we can get a bit carried away um, making statements um, which are perhaps a bit over the top. Uh, I can think of sources, but particularly since this is being filmed, I won't name the guilty person that I particularly have in mind. I think he made a lot of money out of his book. <laughs> anyway, you can guess who that might be. Right, the issues that I'm going to take up then, uh, which I hope to draw some lessons from for post-COVID Britain, though certainly not in the middle of a war, Britain, uh, it's been a moving target here in what we can try and hit, uh, deal with those four aspects. Lots of things left out, just four things uh, I'm going to uh, say a word or two about. First one is dealing with the debt. By that, I mean the public debt, which was built up during uh, World War II. At the end of World War II, uh, the pile of debt, the stock of debt, was about two and a half times GDP. Uh, that's a lot more than it is now. It's more than it was at the end of World War I as well. This is a very big number. Even in 1950, it's about two. Uh, twice uh, the level of GDP. So we're going to try and deal with that uh, after the war. How did they do it? Is there a lesson? That's what we'll do. Um, productivity performance was quite good, but I'm going to argue could have been better. Um, from that, we might want to see whether we think we can learn anything about 
how not to do supply side policy. Reform of the welfare state, I'm going to delve a bit further into the proposition that beverages design does leave us with um, quite a lot of problems and is not really appropriate for a post-COVID economy. And then I'm going to uh, sort of fly a kite or two, uh, take a chance. I didn't realize it was going to be recorded, so I'll have to be more careful than I was going to be, uh, on uh, saving capitalism. Uh, and just that, that point I think I made earlier, that beverage and canes are often seen as the saviors of capitalism. I think that's rather misleading. It's rather over the top. Uh, but the same issue that they were worried about or that people thinking like them were worried about does, I think, haunt us. And I'll try and point out what that is. Okay, so dealing with the debt. This, in a way at least, is one of the big success stories. Uh, the national debt to GDP ratio, or public debt to GDP ratio, fell very rapidly. Uh, it's reached 60% uh, only of uh, GDP by the early 1970s. Moreover, this was done without running large budget surpluses, and we better see how that could be uh, the case. And it coexisted with, went along with and didn't prevent expansion of the welfare state. It might eventually have put a limit, but that limit would have been well away from what they were actually uh, spending. What are the key ingredients here? They are two. The post-war boom, which delivers very rapid growth, and financial repression, uh, which holds down interest rates. I'll explain that term in a second. If you like a very simple identity type algebra, that's for you. Uh, just tell you what the notation represents. And you can think about it yourself in a moment. Uh, little d is the debt to GDP ratio. Little b is the primary budget surplus to GDP ratio. I is the nominal interest rate paid on government debt. Pi is the rate of inflation. Delta Y divided by Y is the rate of growth of real GDP. If your criterion for fiscal sustainability is that the debt to GDP ratio shouldn't go up, and that's a benchmark we might want to choose, so delta D equals zero, then rearranging the equation at the top gives you the equation in the middle. Looking at the words, this says that the primary budget surplus that you would need to meet that target rises the more debt to GDP you've got, and the higher is the real interest rate. Real interest rate here is I minus pi, of course, but it falls with a faster growth rate, and that's really quite important. If you have a budget surplus greater than B star, then you'll be paying off the, the debt or the debt to GDP ratio will be falling. What is striking down there at the bottom is if the real interest rate is less than the real growth rate, and G now stands for delta Y upon Y, if R is less than G, then you can meet this criterion running a primary budget deficit. Now we see how they did it, I suspect. 
financial repressions holding down the interest rate on government borrowing essentially exploit captive holders of the public debt pay them less than they would get in a market situation we did that ruthlessly in the 1950s uh, william allen's excellent book gives you all the details bank regulations and capital controls are at the heart of this and this is a, a definitely a case of fiscal dominance uh, this phrase which now every party bullshitter seems to know um i won't test whether you do i just assume you do that's how bullshitting carries on really okay so reducing d turned out to be fairly painless for taxpayers fell very rapidly with rather modest primary budget surpluses the second bullet point i think tells us why the real interest rate was on average negative in the 1950s low positive in the 1960s it's below the growth rate in almost every year and in some years it's a long way below the growth rate we could actually have run primary budget deficits in principle and still been reducing little day if you do an after the fact decomposition of how the changes in the public debt to to gdp ratio took place uh, that's the years 1950 to 1970 then the decomposition of the decrease shows that the r minus g contribution is quite big relative to the others uh, the residual uh, doesn't uh, i think get explained here it's sort of errors in the data Uh, and some capital gains and losses from moves in the exchange rate lesson for today then lesson 1 r minus g really matters and that's often forgotten uh, people concentrate on how much is the government borrowing the bar- primary budget surplus component that's important yes but it's not the only thing that's important and r minus g really matters that does i think other things equal tell you it would be extremely helpful to raise the growth rate in the context of solving this problem there are one or two other things you could do uh, we could certainly have a go at um, 2020 star financial repression the obvious way to do that would be to stop paying interest on all those commercial bank reserves at the bank of england not quite all most you need some for monetary policy to be able to be made effective uh, but all those things that have piled up from qe um anyway i won't uh, something i do yeah no i'll, I'll stop I, i'm mumbling <laughs> mumbling because i'm about to commit a faux pas we can't have faux pas uh, the chair's put on its tie uh, i've already committed one faux pas by not having a tie uh, i'd better not insult anybody for sure okay we can't go back to the 1950s world of financial repression i don't think we can conceivably go back to the 1950s level or world of economic growth that was a different era it's not repeatable but we could hope for a revival of total factor productivity growth and i'll try and say a word about where that might come from in a minute but we'll leave that pending for the while reforming the welfare state then beveridge's great report in the middle of the war published in 1942 promised lots of things but let me pick out a couple 
One is freedom from want, so nobody below the poverty line. And second, that that could be achieved in the steady state, at least, by removing ending means testing. The phrase that Beveridge uses repeatedly is that he wants a scheme of social insurance. I think that's actually quite a misleading phrase in this context, and I'll try and explain why. Beveridge certainly did want to dress his scheme up as a kind of insurance, but I certainly don't think it's what economists would see as social insurance. Let me leave that hanging for a second and come back to it. Um, those are three pretty big things to promise. Unfortunately, I don't think any of them uh, was achieved. Uh, and let me also say that I've been repeating things that historians have known for a long time in already um, sort of saying, no, Beveridge didn't really do this. There are the benefits and poverty lines uh, that we, we think now from, yeah, okay, I don't think, yeah, perhaps that was 1940s music on reflection, perhaps it was. Okay, um, quickly on this one, uh, the insurance benefits of the beverage type scheme, which was eventually introduced, um, were standardized at two pounds and 10 P in 1948 prices. Um, Beveridge's own poverty line arguably was 2.39. I think there's quite a bit of um, scope for saying it's a bit different. It's only one particular type of recipient, the married couple. Uh, there's a lot of detail you could put in there, but I think that would make uh, the point. Was Beveridge's welfare state well designed? I'm not sure it was. Uh, I'll come to the social insurance point in a moment. Beveridge's scheme re uh, relied on um, contingency benefits. You got paid out if you were sick, if you were unemployed, if you were old. Uh, and these were universal benefits at quite a low level paid to everybody who qualified. Um, they were paid without regard to means testing. The implication, of course, is that at the one end of the scale, you spend a lot of this money on the non-poor. So in modern jargon, you'd say it was not a particularly well-targeted uh, scheme. Second thing, Beveridge did like the idea that benefits were paid out because you'd made contributions. And you've still got that in British uh, thinking uh, today. So you qualified by paying past contributions. In his original version of the scheme, people would not, or many people would not have qualified for a full state pension until 1965, 20 years after the end of the war, by which time they would have had sufficient contributions in his arithmetic. And the payments you get depend on the contributions you've made. Consider that where that would have left the typical pensioner in the 1970s. Faced with rampant, unanticipated inflation, those pensioners were hugely better off with the pay-as-you-go scheme that we ended up with de facto than they would have been if they'd cast their trust in beverage. Uh, Beveridge's promises were not really all that worthwhile in that kind of world. 
maybe that is close to a Ukraine moment, Patrick. Uh, beverages scheme was flat rate benefits and flat rate contributions. I think most people devising a welfare state system would probably think that contributions and benefits might both be earnings related. Time to explore that now. But the point I do want to explore is that I don't think Beveridge's welfare state offered social insurance at all in the economist's sense of the term. Social insurance to me in that jargonistic way represents the state trying to correct a market failure. The market failure is the fact that some markets for insurance are essentially infeasible. You cannot have private insurance for some sorts of risks because of the degree of correlation of the risks, perhaps, uh, the difficulty of quantifying costs, unforeseen contingencies uh, make it difficult to do the insurance in advance. We've just been through a classic case of this, COVID. COVID, we know, was not uh, addressed or capable of being addressed through private insurance. So beverages scheme does not correct market failures of that kind. And yet my own view is that role of the state is going to become more important, not less, in future. So my second lesson for today, COVID reveals or highlights a major weakness in the beveridgian type welfare state. Uh, we should note that one very strong example of something which requires social insurance is social care. The Dilnot report makes that extremely clear and the reasons for it. Social care was left out of beverages scheme uh, altogether. But if you frame the provision against social care needs as social insurance, you get a much more rational way of thinking about it than if you just look at it as distributional transfers. What sorts of things might we need social insurance in future? Well, I'm a bit limited in my imagination, but I managed uh, climate change, cyber attacks, future pandemics. I know I'm going to suggest possibly populism. I don't think I'll follow that one through either. <laughs> okay. Let me turn to improving productivity performance. To do that, you basically need policies that encourage or embody uh, investment and innovation. It is true that among the policies you need or things which I think are valuable are competition, creative destruction, uh, the exit of the old, the entry of the new, the replacement of one by the other, and you also need uh, a workforce, if you like, that, and management in particular, uh, which can absorb effectively new technologies, uh, use them well, create productivity improvements out of them. That's where things like human capital clearly come in in a big way. My claim here is UK productivity performance in the golden age would have benefited from better supply-side policy, and we perhaps shouldn't be looking for lessons in supply-side policy from that period. There's that UK productivity growth again, and just to, to record France and West Germany as comparators. 
What might the policy errors have included? Let me just mention a few. Um, there are one or two more things which will come in uh, in later slides. Um, but I think we could certainly say there was a problem with the um, athlete-style tax system, which took a long time to remedy. Industrial relations were a persistent British issue, at least until the 1980s. Industrial policy basically ended up subsidizing losers, preventing exit from the market, and rather ineffectively trying to subsidize innovation. Competition policy was incredibly weak. Uh, tariffs in the late 1960s were about as high as they had been in the, uh, in the mid-1930s. Um, this is uh, uh, not, I think, a very good uh, combination. You might have different views one way or another on nationalisation. I think it's pretty difficult to say that the British way of nationalisation was in the end very successful. The productivity performance falls to pieces in the end, particularly in the 1970s. I think policy was constrained, I said that earlier, uh, based on trying to get trade unions to cooperate on wage restraint. But look at the bottom footnote, aid memoir point. They tended to believe unemployment had to be incredibly low to get re-elected. The good heart there is the young Charles Goodhart, by the way, uh, just in case you were trying to guess, a pioneering analysis of what the opinion polls said in the 1950s and 60s. Unemployment greater than 1.8% made re-election impossible. Whether or not that's true, if politicians sort of thought it was true and acted accordingly, I think that explains quite a lot of what we see. Uh, just uh, for amusement, look away now, depending what your political colour is. Um, these were personal income taxes in various years. Um, uh, again, my vocabulary is going to struggle. I would describe some of those rates as eye-watering. At least one of them is whatever comes after eye-watering. And I, I'm not quite sure what that is. But we not only had this very high marginal tax rate, I don't think you have to be a total fan of the Laffer curve to think that that might not be a very sensible choice. It took an awfully long time to reduce it. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Okay, supply-side policy, my, my sort of summary would be, it resulted in very weak competition. In effect, it was prioritizing protecting jobs rather than improving productivity. I think that's quite an important point to, to uh, keep in mind. I think it allowed far too much government discretion. Um, we moved away from that, particularly in the Blair era, and, and incentives were undermined, that is true. What's the lesson for today? I don't think it is to imitate what they did, and I'll say a bit more about that as we get right to the end. Uh, it, I think the lesson is not to repeat those mistakes. Uh, 
in particular the mistakes around competition. And I think this points us to wanting, if possible, a social safety net that underpins rather than impedes productivity growth. Protecting jobs is a certain sort of um, social safety net, but I think not the right sort. We got far too close to that. And I think particularly nationalisation tells us government failure is a problem as well as market failure. Okay, let's turn to saving capitalism. I've already mentioned this uh, idea that Keynes and Beveridge are often seen as the saviors. Um, their approach is sometimes described as liberal collectivism, um, not, I think, by economists, perhaps, but certainly by uh, some political scientists. As I said earlier, it appealed to one nation conservatives. The key ingredient, I think, here is economic security. It's no return to the poverty of the 1930s was what was promised, no return to the unemployment. I think we, mutatis mutandis, face a somewhat similar issue today. I see as quite worrying some of the things that opinion polls tell us about increasing scepticism on the value of the market economy. We could go on towards the value of democracy and so on, especially among younger voters. Uh, that would be most unfortunate, in my view, if it were to triumph, to overcome everything. Obviously, around the room, opinions will differ on that. Uh, but if you do think the market economy could be worth preserving to an extent, then I think this is something uh, of a similar issue to that which they thought was there in the 40s. Our equivalent to no return to the 1930s might well be no return to the 2010s. Um, that uh, implies, amongst other things, no return to austerity. In order to uh, achieve this saving capitalism, I'm going to suggest that what you would need to do is to be able credibly to promise to uh, young people, amongst others, that the economy will deliver better living standards in the long run that it will deliver better productivity in the long run, that we move away from the very low productivity growth we've had in the 2010s in particular. The big opportunity coming up is probably artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence may be a big opportunity and, and associated technologies uh, in various ways, eventually to improve productivity. But I think that technology will come with a lot of disruption. It's not going to be the same composition of jobs or in particular tasks in future. So some jobs will disappear, many will be redefined. The market economy as it grows will produce new jobs, I think, but there'll be different ones. We need to, as it were, manage that transition. And at the same time, this will entail a lot of creative destruction. So if you want to get the value out of this technology, you need to accept, manage and deal with that. I think incidentally you would if you had a fully fledged go for green growth policy. A lot of the same issues will arise. I know a bit more about the AI, so I'll stick to that. But 
people might want to explore that in question time. At this point then, uh, I think we probably can recognize uh, a relationship between financing the welfare state and promoting productivity growth. Promoting productivity growth generates more income uh, and it also helps deal with the debt problem. Uh, so that part of the relationship's fairly obvious, I think it would be fair to say. Financing the welfare state is good for financing it well is good for productivity growth if it seems to me it generates the sort of safety net which persuades people the market economy is worth sticking with and deals with the disruption we're going to see probably delivers social insurance here are some people talking uh, to an opinion poll uh, done last year 2021 uh, I had to check what millennials and Zoomers were. Uh, you, you probably know, uh, I'm reliably informed that that's probably the chronology. If it's not, yeah, I'll replace it afterwards. Uh, the question wasn't, is capitalism bad, is socialism good? It was a loaded question, certainly, but it was a bit more subtle than that. But I'll summarise it that way. You can see a very large number of people uh, agreeing with something like that sentiment. I'm sure you could put the question to them a different way and get a different answer, but there's enough there, I think, to worry a bit about. Here's the technology uh, story in future. According to probably the best study that the OECD at least has done, the median job in OECD countries has about a 48% chance of being automated by 2035. Or another way of looking at this, 35% of the tasks of the median job, automatable by 2026, a different study. A lot of displacement there, I think you'd probably say. They're the first round effects. The key test for the economy is the second round effects, uh, what Asimoglu called the reinstatement effects. Uh, we need those to generate the new jobs, if you like. And we need to redeploy workers from the old to the new. Successful redeployment is the key there to realizing the potential gain, it seems to me. UK's record is pretty poor. That's our productivity growth performance in the pre-COVID years. 0.4% a year growth in real GDP per hour worked. That won't cut the mustard, as they used to say. Uh, my granny used to say that, I think. Okay, is there anything we could do about it? Well, we need to be well positioned to use the opportunity of AI uh, if we want to raise trend productivity growth in general. We won't do it simply by cutting taxes. Those sensibly designed tax reform might well be a part of the package. The things we need to improve include that list, I think, education and skills, innovation, infrastructure, and land use planning, as well as the tax system. Two comments, one of which I've written on the slide. In no way is the 1940s the place to look for the policies to put forward. The 1944 Education Act, I don't think so. Secondary moderns were a very, very poor way to rebold uh, the system. Innovation, 
dominated totally by defence. That's not the way to go either. Uh, it delivered Concord, but Concord delivered nothing but large losses. Infrastructure, nuclear power, the delay of the motorway, motorway system, I should say, no cost benefit analysis applied to government spending. I could go on. The M25 was mooted in 1938, was completed in 1986. I think that probably tells you something about that. Land use planning, the Town and Country Planning Act of 1947, followed immediately by green belts. I don't think that's what we would be looking for for a flexible uh, modern planning system either. The tax system I've made a couple of comments about already. So the 1940s is not the place to look. The comment I've not written here because um, I, I can't commit it to uh, the airwaves in, in, in type, uh, but I'll say it anyway, is the problem in reforming these policies lies entirely in Westminster. Leaving the EU is neither here nor there. Brussels hasn't stopped us doing this. Our own governments have not done very well in these policy areas. They should improve or try to improve, but not on the basis of going back to the 1940s. If we do want to live with creative destruction, uh, I think we probably need three key ingredients, but the exact design, I would certainly want to leave to specialists. This is difficult active labor market policies. That includes lots of retraining, but also strong incentives to look for work if you are unemployed and so on, probably linking the two. Protecting the worker, not the job. Uh, that's protecting workers against catastrophic income losses when they lose their job, but not trying to stop the job creation and job destruction uh, process. Government's got an early test of its view on that with what it decides to do about Scunthorpe. My accent might suggest I do, but I don't in fact come from Scunthorpe, so you can offer uh, whichever view you want. And social insurance, that's the um, insuring people against losses that the private market can't possibly deal with. We need to reduce the adjustment costs of job change and try and design this in a way that keeps Nehru low. Again, they didn't really do any of that in the 1940s. So conclusions, the last slide, three minutes late, Patrick, sorry. We shouldn't repeat the errors of the 1940s as a message that has run through this talk. I think it would be over the top to say that Beveridge and Keynes saved the UK economy. In practice, they didn't. But the fact that it was thought that something was needed that's an important thing to remember because I think it applies to us as well. Uh, the post-1945 period, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't really offer a blueprint for a modern reform of the welfare state or a bundle of policies to solve the productivity puzzle. But, and I've said this about four times, do think taking social insurance seriously is a valuable thing to do. Okay. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, characteristically illuminating and incisive as ever. Um, I feel a bit sorry for Clem Attlee's government, given the score sheet that you've just given them. Um, 
we're going to move over to questions uh, now. Um, for those people who are online, please obviously use the uh, function to type in your questions, giving your name and address. I'm going to start, though, with some questions in the room um, to get us going. So let me just start here um, in the front row. And we're going to wait for uh, Mike. And please, could you identify yourself at the start of your question? Right, yes. Uh, Bernard Casey from Frankfurt. Thank you very much for that. I want to ask you a question about what we understand by more investment. What do we count as investment? Where does the social concept of investment count amongst investment? And what views do you take about things like golden rules a la um, brown, but things that come before and after that? Because the big problem seems to be that a lot of this is costing money. A lot of this can be counted as investment. And how do rules, either national rules or international rules, cope with those kinds of investment? Thank you. I think, I think one more time. That's um, about five questions in one. Um, I'll try and answer about three of them if that's all right. Uh, what do I count as investment? I think it is more than just physical capital machines and so on. It's clearly very importantly investment in human capital. It's investment in what we might call intangible capital. That would include R&D and software and uh, so on. Uh, that's if we're talking about trying to increase GDP. If we're thinking of something which is more a well-being kind of criterion, we might include some other um, types, but I, I won't dwell on that. I would expect in a well-functioning market economy, a reasonably high rate of investment. The UK has been disappointing for some time. And I'd expect most of it, vast majority of it, to be done by the private sector. I was not trying to issue a call for um, a huge increase in public investment. Um, that said, some things do need to be invested in by the public sector, uh, and that certainly includes infrastructure. Well-organized infrastructure programs crowd in private investment in the medium to long term rather than crowd it out. Insofar as government has to finance uh, investment, uh, depending what sort of investment we're talking about, there could be a revenue stream, but quite often there might not be, and it might not be optimal or politically feasible to try and realise uh, a revenue stream, in which case some borrowing may need to be uh, undertaken. And we probably would think that the above all fiscal rule that we would want uh, is over time that we on the whole don't borrow very much to finance consumption, but we do think it appropriate to allow some borrowing for investment. Um, that's not a full answer to your question, I realise that, but I think other people will need a try. Oh, it's very full to my mind. Um, let me just take one of the questions from the um, online uh, participants. Um, this is from Michael Harvey, an alumnus of the Open University and the University of Warwick. So I don't know whether you taught him at some point. Um, 
The question he poses is this. Um, one of the pillars of the Attlee administration uh, was progressive taxation of both unearned and earned income and inheritances. Um, during this period, growth was faster, society was more equal. As taxation um, has changed to become uh, ever less progressive since the 1980s, growth has drifted down and inequality has risen. Uh, Michael asks, is, is this a lesson that needs to be learned as the current government uh, starts, embarks on its growth, growth, growth strategy? Let me make uh, two or three comments on that. Again, there's an awful lot in that question. Um, good Warwick students always have these excellent questions, uh, even if they haven't been taught by me. Um, progressive taxation, yes, the early post-war system was uh, very progressive, at least on the face of it. Um, its degree of progression did involve, in the end, some very, very high marginal tax rates. And you've certainly, I think, got a balance to, to be struck there between redistribution and undermining uh, incentives. Not sure that government uh, got it right. If you look at later redistribution, on balance, the tax system doesn't do very much. The early post-war period is a bit unusual. It's doing some. We actually do the redistribution primarily through benefits. And uh, that's, I think, very clear in the numbers. Howard Venister's excellent uh, sort of summary of post-war policy uh, shows us that. Uh, the downsides of having an extremely progressive tax system uh, I think are pretty clear in the behaviours that it uh, generates in terms of things like tax avoidance and tax evasion. I think it's fairly clear that was a big problem at the end of the 1940s. But that tax system was actually quite crazy in the sense that it left a whole bunch of things out. Uh, you wouldn't want that kind of income taxation without taxing capital gains effectively. Uh, but that was exactly uh, uh, what they did. Um, even very mediocre British low-level managers typically had a company car, fringe benefit that wasn't taxed, and a tax-efficient way to get around the system. Those are just a couple of uh, examples. Uh, the recent paper by Peter Scott and James Walker on top incomes in 1949-50, I think makes a cast iron case for major evasion. Um, if you uh, were just to add one more comment in, it's hard to believe the tax system of the 1950s and 60s was responsible for that fast growth. I think it probably marginally held it back. Uh, the person who reviewed that tax system and compared it with a whole bunch of other ones in the OECD was Vito Tanzi, uh, the uh, preeminent IMF public finance specialist who later wrote lots of books on, on public finances and so on. His conclusion in the book written in 1969 was that the British tax system was the least favourable to economic growth of any of the countries he investigated. So uh, I'm gonna downgrade the government even further. Um, thank you. Um, let's move on to another question from the room. Um, can we get the microphone um, over 
there's a question here in the, the center. Um, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Professor, for this lecture. I'm uh, Andrea Mazzotti, a PhD student here in the Department of Economic History. My question is about the geopolitical context then and now. To what extent the welfare system was also an insurance against the dissolution of the social contract at the time of the Cold War, where you have a superpower that is able to project a false image of a, an alternative economic system? And where does it leave that now, us, where we have autocracies, not as ideologically complex, but technologically sophisticated to use our economic cleavages for uh, to stoke political uh, division amongst us? Yeah, I mean, it, I think if you are filling out a wider context, it is perfectly reasonable to think the Cold War matters. Uh, it is perfectly reasonable to think that that was in the minds, for example, of the designers of the Marshall Plan, uh, when they uh, offered all that money to Europe, it wasn't uh, entirely uh, without thinking about the Cold War. And it certainly, I think, was with a view to um, doing what you suggested, uh, helping uh, to gather more support for the Western way of doing things rather than the communist way. Uh, so, yes, I think it's reasonable to say that that was a concern then, and it's possibly not a concern now, but that was my sort of aside that I didn't follow up on populism. Yeah. Let me take a question from uh, the uh, participants online. This is from uh, Michael Joff. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly at all. Of Imperial College and alumnus of LSE. He asked, one of the big problems in the post-war period in the UK was quality of management. Fragmented ownership with many firms that are relatively unproductive, as contrasted with France and Germany. It's still a problem. Um, it's arguable, he says, that the British productivity puzzle is a continuation of that. Um, the policy emphasis here is on encouraging entrepreneurs and SMEs. We have rather few well-beating firms now, even fewer than before there were. Do you think this is a... I think uh, I can agree. That's all right, carry on. I, I think I can agree with a lot of that, uh, except to sort of pedantically point out that although we think we can measure the quality of management now, at least in some ways, and I point you, as you probably know, to the big Bloom and Van Rien and, and all sorts of other co-authors uh, project, uh, the approach they've taken is reasonably convincing, but you can't actually use it in a historical context, unfortunately, because the data don't exist. Uh, so I'm inclined to think from all sorts of things economic historians would put together that quality of management is a problem, but it, it's difficult actually to measure it. If you ask why it was a problem, then I think you're right to see a big part of the story as corporate governance. And I think that was um, involved in the question, in effect. Um, there are two things you might then try and do. One would be reform corporate governance, and we didn't really particularly pursue that effectively. The other, of course, is to make sure that competition prevents the persistence of seriously poor management. 
So when I said I thought one of the major weaknesses of the post-war period was the very low degree of competition in many product markets and actually the ineffective performance of the market for corporate control as well, then actually part of what I was saying is that low competition economy allowed bad management to continue for longer than it should have done. Uh, and incidentally, I think it was also a major contribution to poor British industrial relations. Um, there is, of course, an excellent book which goes on about that in great detail, published in 2018, with myself as the good author. Uh, so uh, a glance at chapter five of that book would answer the question more fully. Fabulous. We get the reading list as well. That's what we like to hear. Um, let's take another question there, I think, in the middle of the front row um, first, and then we'll move to some of those behind. Um, if you want to ask a question, please sit your arm up quite high because I'm, I, it's quite flat here. I'm struggling to see. Um, please. Yeah. Um, let me take that in two parts, Sarah. Um, the COVID, uh, I think we did develop an ad hoc social insurance system. Quite a lot of people fell through the cracks because it was designed extremely quickly. Um, the self-employed, for example, would be one, um, including relatives of mine, like my daughter. Um, we need, I think, some serious research on whether furlough was actually a good response or not, what a good response would look like. You know, if we're thinking of a, a COVID inquiry which learns lessons, uh, I don't suppose they will, but that would be an excellent topic on which to, uh, to focus. Going on to your question about AI, or uh, I mean, I was really thinking of uh, cases where lots of jobs are lost, uh, lots of jobs uh, are later created. You've got to get from one to the other. Uh, job loss, as we know, for lots of workers, just effectively wipes out their existing human capital. You know, that's where I think the huge loss comes from. You can't really insure your human capital effectively against that kind of uh, disaster. I was suggesting the state should do more. Um, I think it's become a kind of tarnished phrase in some quarters. But what I had at the back of my mind was something like flexicurity, uh, which is essentially the Danish uh, social insurance system. Uh, and that essentially includes versions of those pillars, those three things, uh, which I put up on the screen. Uh, I don't have a, a blueprint exactly in mind, uh, but presumably insurance couldn't be uh, indefinite, so to speak. Uh, there has to be a quite strong mechanism for taking the worker back into work, if at all, possible. And one of the worst things we did in the 1980s was end up with all those people in the economic inactivity category. So I very much had in mind uh, a system which would um, guard against really bad losses from uh, losing your human capital, uh, but also not incentivize people to disappear into economic inactivity. Um, I'm just, I promised to go back into that row over there. So if we could take the 
lady beside the white t-shirt. Um, start there and then we'll move on. So please. Can you... Sorry, is the microphone on? Just check. But I, I think it. Hello. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to say what I really enjoyed about your uh, presentation was when you uh, mentioned both sides of policy. So on the one hand side, you have the economic effects that follow, but then there's also uh, more an aspect of mentality to it as well, which I find quite interesting. So I just wanted to ask you about um, where do you see this connection? Like, for example, needs one mentality to uh, be there amongst the wider population for certain policies to occur? Or do the policies come first and that then changes the mentality of um, politicians and the general public towards such, such things as competition or creative destruction? And if you see a strong correlation there and a strong connection, um, what would you suggest about potentially changing the current mindset um, maybe to, um, to allow for more feasible uh, or, or better suited policies to, to put into action? Mm, that's a very difficult question. Um, and I, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to sound like Mr. Grumpy uh, at this point, uh, because uh, I'm rather pessimistic on this kind of issue. You know, when I was young, long, long time ago, we aspired to evidence-based policy. Uh, we then realized that actually we usually got policy-based evidence. And then uh, I think we've actually now progressed or regressed, whatever the word is, to narrative-driven policy, uh, which is uh, more insidious by far, I think. Um, it is really quite difficult for someone like me to believe that politicians, the decision makers, really take evidence very seriously, at least most of the time. You know, if we go back to the tax system, for instance, there is an excellent report on how to reform the British tax system done by the Institute for Fiscal Studies called the Murley's Report, published in 2011. Huge amount of work went into that, sort of probably every reputable public finance person in the country, or at least most of them, chipped in. There's a very clear blueprint for reform. It hasn't ever even been discussed, let alone translated into policy. Um, it certainly would have a very different combination of tax reforms from that which the present government, I think, would like to introduce. Um, I think we should give them a chance. We should wait and see for see if they will deliver some evidence to suggest that their proposed changes will have positive effects of the kind that they claim. My knowledge of the literature says, I think to the extent that they are making these claims, that's possibly quite unlikely. And the uh, reforms, as I say, which the Murley's report would advocate, they did provide some quite good uh, quantitative evidence on what the impact might be. And it was effectively pro-growth amongst other things, but 
it came with a consideration of the evidence and some quantification. Um, how we get from here to there with our politicians, I really don't know. And that's why I am Mr. Grumpy. Oh, um, I'm gonna take one question from the Zoom and then we'll come back in the room. Um, this is from Jim Tomlinson of Glasgow University, well known uh, to many of us. Um, he asks, does the shift from an industrial to a predominantly service economy since the 1940s really alter the possibility of productivity increases because of biomole effects and or the appropriate policies to achieve these increases? Characteristically, Jim. Over to you, Nick. Jim, excellent question. Thank you. Uh, I think the first part of your question uh, it's reasonably commonplace, I think, to suggest on average that productivity growth in the manufacturing sector tends to exceed that in the service sector as a whole. Uh, we might be able to find examples of particular parts of the service sector, which from time to time um, do have periods of quite rapid growth. Uh, I think one of the possibilities of AI is that actually it might have quite strong effects in the service sector. ICT had some quite strong effects in parts of the service sector. But that immediately speaks to Jim's uh, second uh, part of his question, uh, which I won't answer in full, but let me answer by an example. Uh, the sector which particularly embraced IT in the late 20th and early 21st century was the financial sector. Insofar as we can measure financial output, and there are some queries about that, it clearly was a rapidly growing uh, productivity activity. And the British economy actually was quite large. It was about 8% of GDP before the crash. Uh, probably twice the size of France or Germany. But what do you need to uh, regain or retain most of that productivity performance? You need a financial sector which doesn't blow up in your face. And the implication of that is you need a seriously regulated financial sector. Here is a good example from the textbooks even I had as an undergraduate where well, we know that market failure is actually quite important. Um, the regulatory regime we had prior to 2007 was clearly quite inadequate. It mattered much more in that service economy than it would have a little earlier. Thank you. Um, let's move back into the hall. Let's take a question here from the front of the middle row. And if you'd uh, put your hands up high so that I can queue a few less questions past them. Oh, hi, Nick. Uh, Josh Banerjee, PhD student in the department. Uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on something that's a pretty topical issue at the moment, but also probably has its historical antecedents from, you know, the 40s and the 50s. And that's the question of what to do with monetary policy. I mean, we've obviously gone on to a tightening cycle at the moment in tandem with other central banks. Um, but we saw the Bank of England stage that kind of unorthodox intervention uh, in the bonds market a couple of weeks ago. And it reminded me of the policies of the Labour Chancellor, Hugh Dalton, uh, in the 40s. And he basically enacted what I guess in modern parlance would be known as yield curve control. 
you know, long run interest rate ceilings. Can you envisage circumstances going forward, a sort of quasi fiscal dominance, where we do start dipping into that more unorthodox kind of, uh, what do you call it, macro prudential toolkit, you know, the stuff from the Radcliffe Commission in the 50s? And then I suppose the other side of that question is you've talked a lot about creative destruction. Where do you stand on this argument about the link between the ultra loose monetary policy of the last decade and the dismal productivity performance? Do you think it was a big driver in the case of the UK? Let me take the last part of the question first, if I may. Um, I think there is an element in the productivity performance that we could possibly attribute to the ultra loose monetary policy. Uh, the phrase I'm sure you know that we typically run into is zombie firms. But looking at the evidence that people like the OECD have compiled, I get the impression that that's certainly not a dominant influence by any manner of means. Um, and if that was a price to pay for sort of having some unorthodox monetary policy for a while, uh, you know, at the zero lower bound and so on, uh, then it's probably not a huge price that we paid. Uh, I think we can think of all sorts of ways in which the collapse of the financial sector or the, the nearly collapse of the financial sector did have an impact on productivity performance. Uh, they include all sorts of issues to do with impairment of flows of capital to new firms, that's true. Um, bad matching in the labour market probably uh, is a consequence as well, and so on. But uh, I think faced with the options, I wouldn't have not done QE because I'd be afraid of zombie firms. Okay. Uh, going back to your question about the early uh, post-war period, um, I think we really probably do have to put that in the context of the macroeconomic trilemma. And what is it that we would like to choose? Uh, we chose in that period uh, essentially not to have free capital movements. We did have a fixed exchange rate. Uh, so we were allowed or able to combine that with some uh, monetary sovereignty if we wanted. So I think the option would have been there to use monetary policy more than they did uh, in terms of um, the role that the Ratcliffe Committee didn't like it having because it didn't think it could be uh, done effectively. Uh, and I think probably subsequent writers would think the Ratcliffe Committee was a little bit at the end of a spectrum, a little bit extreme uh, in its views. Uh, as a long run proposition, uh, I'm not really a fan of running monetary policy on the basis of fiscal dominance. Uh, that might be appropriate in uh, special circumstances. It perhaps was an understandable thing to do, and it did have some benefits in the 1950s. But as a general rule, I think I'd prefer to see monetary policy organized in normal times on the basis of inflation targeting. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, I'm afraid that we are really at our time now for this event. Um, Nick's committed almost no faux pas and pronounced, I think, little, if any, bullshit for which we can thank and congratulate him. 
Um, I don't think any of us who followed his work were at all surprised by that. Lack of bullshit is a key part of it. Um, let's uh, simply uh, thank uh, Nick for his work. Um, those of you who are in the room, there is a, a, a modest non-alcoholic reception outside uh, where we can mingle afterwards. Um, those of you who are joining us online, uh, thank you very much for attending us from wherever you are in the world. Um, and uh, thank you again, Nick. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.